Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor. I am the co-host of this podcast, an incoming freshman at UCLA Nexter, and also elected as a delegate for Biden, Illinois. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience during the Watergate trial as the only woman on the team. Uh, I also had the privilege of serving in the Carter administration in the Pentagon as general counsel of the Army, um, and also as deputy attorney general of the state of Illinois. So with that, Victor... Want to introduce our guest? For sure. So we come to you today, you know, days after it was officially announced that Joe Biden would be the president-elect and Kamala Harris the vice president-elect. Moments after it was announced, we saw hundreds, thousands of people um, in the streets celebrating in part because of joy over Vice President Biden and Senator Harris winning, but also in part of joy because of um, we're free from the chaos and the damage that um, has been inflicted to our most basic values as a nation caused by the Trump administration. Um, today, we couldn't be more honored and grateful to be talking to U.S. Congressman and Majority Whip in the House, Jim Clyburn, about his support for Joe Biden during the primaries, his thoughts on the Joe Biden's campaign, the transition, and what he expects under the next administration. So first, thank you so much for being here, Congressman Clyburn. It is a real honor. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be with you. Thank you. And the first thing I want to talk about is for early supporters of Vice President Biden during the primary, uh, there were some moments of concern. There were some very bad moments where, uh, for example, on the night of the Iowa caucuses, uh, where Joe finished fifth. Uh, and he was continuing to struggle in New Hampshire and Nevada but then you became a hero. You changed everything. You gave a speech in South Carolina in which you very powerfully said, I know Joe, we know Joe, and Joe knows us. Uh, it made a real big difference. So let's start by talking about, first of all, you've known uh, Joe Biden, president-elect, uh, for a long time. You knew him in Congress, and you also knew him while he was vice president. So can you just talk about him as a person, as a colleague, and as maybe as a negotiator who might be able to cross party lines? Well, you know, first of all, um, Joe's background and experiences are uh, really uh, pretty close to my own. Uh, and the way I really got to know Joe was... Uh, doing these kinds of uh, events with him. Uh, we used to be on Tyler Rose's show together a lot. And it was because um, we sort of um, uh, had views on Brown v. Board of Education that came from our personal experiences. Mm. Now, a lot of people know Brown as being a Kansas case because uh, that's what the name was. But the Brown case originated here in South Carolina. Really? Uh, it was Briggs v. Elliott at, at the lower court. Um, and then there was a case up in uh, Virginia, the, the Davis case in Virginia, Bolton in Washington, D.C. Uh, and then there was a case, two cases coming out of Delaware, hmm. uh, Belton uh, v. Gebhardt. Uh, and 
Joe and I should talk about what those cases meant and how uh, we had a different set of experiences trying to negotiate uh, through the, all of that. And I spent time on the board of the Southern Regional Council, uh, which was a, uh, a biracial group of people that came together uh, trying uh, to implement Brown. So these uh, things just uh, form the foundation of our relationship. So, but on that day that I make, made the, um, the endorsement, uh, what was going through my mind was the long discussions I'd had with my wife. My wife had passed away about six months earlier. Uh, she loved Joe Biden. Uh, and she talked to me all the time about uh, doing what I could to help Joe Biden uh, get elected. And it was one of the last discussions we had was about Joe Biden. And then it turned out on that Friday before the South Carolina debate, I went to a funeral uh, and there on the front pew of the church was a lady who I'd never seen before who beckoned me over to her. And I went over, she said to me, I need to ask you a question. And if you don't want anybody to hear the answer, lean down and whisper it in my ear. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I need to know who you're voting for in this election. And I leaned down and complimented her and I whispered in her ear, I'm gonna vote for Joe Biden. And she said, she snapped back and I, the look in her face, I can't explain it. But it was just, just the way she, she looked when she, she said to me, I needed to hear that. And this community needs to hear from you. And um, that I said, well, uh, I need to, I need to do something. Uh, but that's why I made the endorsement uh, when I did and the way I did it, uh, because she was right. Uh, the community was waiting to hear from me. Uh, I felt that I never knew the impact of the endorsement, uh, though I was hopeful that we could do it in such a way uh, that will help out on uh, a super Tuesday. Now, what I meant when I said that Joe knows us, Joe suffered a catastrophic event at the age of 29, just after getting elected. Wife and daughter getting killed in an automobile accident, uh, two sons laying up in the hospital before he was ever sworn in, uh, before he was even old enough to be sworn in. Had two aneurysms that he overcame uh, another son uh, to pass away, uh, stuttering in his childhood, spending his whole life trying to overcome uh, stuttering. These are kinds of things that if people knew them, uh, they, uh, Joe just internalized so much of what a lot of people that I represent have been through. So to me, it was kind of easy. Uh, to endorse him. Uh, so all this talk about, I was thinking about doing something else. None of that's true. I was never going to vote for anybody but Joe, Joe Biden. I love that story. And I love that there were two prominent women in your life who yeah. influenced that. Um, and so that's, okay. So now that you had this impact, which completely reversed his fortunes in the primaries, um, can you tell us, you know, at, at that time, it wasn't sure that what was going to happen, but um, 
in terms of policy, what were you supporting when you supported him, when you said you were going to vote for him? Was it just character, which is high integrity and real empathy? Or were there some policies that you felt he was the right one or strategies that he had? Well, strategy, yes. Uh, policy, I had no problem with him on policy. But I was having a problem with, uh, with him on strategy. So the Sunday night before the debate, we met uh, with uh, him and uh, Bennett Thompson and uh, Marsha Fudge, Bennett Thompson from Mississippi, Marsha Fudge, Congresswoman from uh, Ohio, um, and, and his sister. And um, uh, there was some, I think Donald Payne uh, was in the room. Cedric Richmond was delayed. He was supposed to be meeting with us. But at that meeting, uh, I said to him uh, that I was, I'm going to endorse. Here's the way I'm going to do it. Uh, but I need some help from you. And I said to him that at this debate, please answer every question the way my father, the fundamentalist minister, would answer it in threes. Here is what this answer means to you. Here's what it means to your family. Here's what it means to your community. And stop talking. Mm. I told him that I just thought that he was talking too much, uh, <laughs> and, uh, which is great on the floor of the Senate, uh, but not so good uh, in debates and trying to make points with public. So that's, that's really all I said to him. Now, I did tell him uh, that I thought that one of the undercurrents in the Black community uh, was that um, there had been four women uh, appointed uh, to the Supreme Court and never had a black woman been given serious consideration. And I thought that's something he ought to, ought to think about. And obviously he's taken your advice, which was yeah, very smart. Right, for sure. <laughs> and you know, all of this is bringing me back memories of Iowa. Um, Jill mentioned the Iowa caucus. And um, so I went to the Iowa caucus to help out with the get out to vote operations there. And uh, my school, um, some of our AP government classes went there and um, I met up with them on that Monday, which was the Iowa caucus. And um, we had the option of either going to Pete Buttigieg's rally or um, Joe Biden's rally. And I was the only one out of a group of like 45 people, I think, to go to Joe Biden's rally. The spirits were so low. And then, you know, afterwards I uh, made my way to Pete Buttigieg's rally and it was just the spirits were so high there. It was just the opposite. But, you know, that moment that you, that speech that you gave really changed everything. I'm just wondering, like, did you, did you expect that you'd be the one to, I guess, revive Joe Biden's campaign? Well, I thought that I could uh, help him do well in South Carolina, but I had no idea uh, that it would uh, work out the way it did. Though I made plans for that. What I did, uh, and I told him, this was Sunday night, when I met with him all day Monday, uh, you may know Antoine Seawright, who does a lot, lot of my stuff, uh, my media stuff. I got Antoine and we sat down and did uh, two or three uh, robocalls. Uh, we did about three uh, radio ads, uh, basically for black radio stations. Mm -hmm. And I said to Antoine, now you, you put these in the can uh, we're going to make this in, endorsement nine o'clock uh, Wednesday morning, uh, and let's flood the zone. And um, and if things go well uh, on the 29th, which is that Saturday, then let's be prepared 
to move into North Carolina, um, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, uh, with these ads and these robocalls. And that's what we did. Uh, we got the results um, Saturday night, a 29-point victory. And I got up the next morning and went straight to North Carolina. I went up to Fayetteville and Goldsboro. And people were talking. And they were all they were talking about was that Wednesday morning endorsement. And so I called Antoine back. I said, Antoine, it is working. Get to work. And that's the rest is history. Right, for sure. And you know, since since that moment, a lot has happened in both the primary and general elections. But through all of the noise and criticism of the campaign, one thing that really struck to me, you know, being on the campaign and helping out was just how focused the campaign was on sticking to its message and core values and really ignoring some of the outside pressure um, and criticism. And you know, now as we see that strategy worked and with voter turnouts far surpassing what we saw in 2016, um, I, I guess I would be curious to know, you know, when you compare this election with past elections and past campaigns, you know, there's so much about past campaigns, you know, this is the most important election in our lifetime. Um, you know, it's always about, you know, reuniting people. What stood out to you the most about this election? Why was that different compared to um, past ones? Well, you know, I, I think that what was uh, easy, and this may sound strange to you, but if you were to take Barack Obama out of the equation, look at the backgrounds, look at who the white Democrats were for president, the Democratic candidates. Go back through time, and what you're going to find is, is Bill Clinton, uh, Jimmy Carter, Lyndon Johnson, uh, and now Joe Biden. They all got one thing in common. They're Southerners. Hmm. They're Southerners. And um, what I have found is that if you can relate uh, to uh, the constituents in such a way that they feel you, not just hear you, but to feel you. Uh, and I think that these candidates, because of their backgrounds, their experiences, uh, they uh, can develop that. Uh, the the empathy that you get from the kind of experiences that you've had. Look, I don't know that there was anybody could have gotten the Great Society programs uh, through the Congress the way Lyndon Johnson did. Uh, no uh, president had put more uh, African Americans on judiciary than Jimmy Carter did. Uh, no president has brought uh, African Americans into the administration the way Bill Clinton did. And even if you go all the way back to Harry Truman, he was from Missouri. And, um, you know, uh, so you get, uh, and it was Harry Truman uh, because of an incident that happened with an African-American soldier here in South Carolina. He moved to integrate the armed service. He, he uh, filed his executive order because of that incident right here. Now you have Franklin Roosevelt that gets a lot of credit for a lot of things that he did save the economy he, uh, with the New Deal and all of that, uh, but he refused to integrate the armed services and he was begged to do so by civil rights groups. He refused to, to allow uh, blacks in the South to participate in uh, the Work Products Administration, the CCC, all these jobs had white only on them. He was a great 
New Yorker, but he didn't have, he didn't have the kind of empathy. So I, you know, uh, I've studied this stuff a lot, and I think uh, that um, uh, what you have to do is figure out a way uh, to make the connection, mm -hmm. so that people can not just hear you but feel you, and that to me uh, is what Joe does. Uh, and um, I've had some people that criticize earlier when he gave his acceptance speech that night. He says uh, to the African American community, "You've always had my back." And I will have your back. I'm not too sure that um, anybody else would have said that. He has the extraordinary empathy that very few people have. And I, I, I knew Hillary Clinton personally and knew her to also have great humanity, aside from her intellect that everyone recognized. Sure. But her empathy and her generosity and her humor never came across. And never so you've made a very interesting point yeah. about how Southerners have had a better shot at doing that. Um, right. But okay, so let's go to a slightly different subject, which is one of my biggest concerns and biggest reliefs when I heard that we had uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris is that we will return to the rule of science and the rule of law. And I've been very concerned, particularly about the Department of Justice, which I served and loved for a long time. I used to be very proud to go to court and say, on behalf of the people of the United States. And we've lost that, I think. So I'm, I'm really focused now on what should President Biden, when he is sworn in, consider in nominating an attorney general uh, should it be someone who's totally nonpartisan um, after the impeachment um, and the resignation of Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford appointed Edward Levy, who was a university a law school, University of Chicago law school dean. And um, he was completely nonpartisan and that helped to restore respect to the Department of Justice. And I think we need that now. So I'm just wondering if you have any suggestions for him on who your favorites are for attorney general and how to restore the uh, reputation of the department? Well, I don't know if I'll get into names with him, but I will tell him the kind of person I You know, um, I think that one of the things that we have to keep in mind um, is one thing to be partisan is something else again to be political. <laughs> and, and, and you don't have to be non-political to be non-partisan. Uh, I think that we have to keep in mind uh, that the political process uh, needs the experience of, uh, that you learn from politics to make it work. Uh, you know, I think that uh, Janet Reno was very non-partisan, uh, much to Bill Clinton's chagrin, uh, but, uh, but she was political. There's no question about that. Uh, Carrie Meeks knew Janet Reno real well. And Karen and I were very good friends. I still are uh, good friends. She's no longer in the Congress. Uh, but, and we used to talk about Janet uh, all the time, the political but very nonpartisan. So I think he needs to get someone who understands the political process and can be political, uh, but still be uh, nonpartisan. So I would not get into any, any real names, but um, uh, I know of quite a few people uh, who would fit that bill. Excellent. Um, I, I'm pushing for some of my sisters-in-law at MSNBC, who I think would be great attorneys general. 
That's, I think I know who some of those are. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. And they're terrific people. So. And I'll tell you something else. You know, uh, I, I keep hearing Sally Yates' name uh, floating around. Yeah. And she, uh, and, and when I talk about Jimmy Carter and the African Americans that he put in the judiciary in various judgeships and all that kind of stuff, you remember who his attorney general was? He was also a Southerner. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. he was. And Sally Yates is an excellent example of someone who would be, I think, ideal. Um, Barbara McQuaid and Joyce Vance. Barbara McQuaid is actually on the transition team for the yes. Department of Justice. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about transition because it has been held up because uh, the president, current president, will not concede and the GSA will not ascertain or confirm that the new president-elect is Joe Biden. And so there are serious things that are being stopped like security clearances for his top staff, briefings that some would be even um, secret materials that can't be shared because they don't have the security clearances. So there's some real problems with the transition. I, I, I don't think people understand the importance of transition, things that happened during this period that foreign nations may take advantage of. Um, As the beneficiary of the transition in the Carter administration, I saw the work of the transition team because I was nominated for three jobs in three different agencies. And in reading the transition reports, you learn a lot about, you know, when you get to your desk at the new place, what would you actually be doing? And that's really important. But I think the most important right now is um, whether this refusal to concede is stopping, um, for example, the credibility of the election results and will be believed by some. So tell me what you think about how transitions should work and how we could bring about a change so that transition can officially start for Joe Biden. Well, uh, I think that Joe has made it very clear that he's moving forward uh, with everything that he can possibly do. And you're right. Uh, he doesn't have access uh, to the daily briefings. Uh, they're not giving him uh, all of the information they're getting of a security nature. And if you recall, uh, the 9-11 Commission uh, gave some uh, blame uh, for the breakdown that allowed that to occur uh, to the fact that we had a delayed transition. Um, uh, I guess it was in December uh, before the Supreme Court uh, ever declared George W. Bush uh, the winner. Uh, and so uh, this kind of stuff uh, needs to take place. However, having said that, uh, I do believe very strongly uh, that this one will come to a close before. He may not ever concede, uh, and I don't think he ever will. Uh, the truth of the matter is he lost the election. And he's never told the truth about anything. Uh, so for him not to tell the truth about losing the election, uh, that won't be a, a surprise to me. But I do believe that something else is at stake here. And not just our security when it comes uh, to foreign powers, but our security internally, our security economically. Uh, I do believe uh, that the corporate leadership of this country, uh, aside from the Republican Party, uh, we'll step into the breach uh, uh, very soon. It says, hey, enough is enough. 
and we got to bring this to a close uh, because a lot of international uh, business interests are, are at stake and could very well uh, be damaged irreparably if we don't. Is there any way that Congress could um, force GSA to officially, the word is ascertain, to confirm the victory of Joe Biden and release the funds? Or is that something that you have no power to do? Yes, Congress got the power to do that, but you, you got to get it past two houses uh, uh, to do it. And it, and it can't be done unless the outlaws have to be signed by the president. So, uh, no, it won't happen. Oh, God. <laughs> well, um, let's hope that something happens in the next um, couple of days or weeks that gives us hope um, from the GSA. But let's transition into some of the work that is ahead of us because we know it won't be easy. Um, one reason is that we're kind of experiencing some uh, conflicting ideologies within the Democratic Party. Um, as WHIP, you know, you've had to wrangle some of the Democratic members and build consensus in your own caucus. But as we head into the next Congress and next administration, what do you think Joe Biden and the next leadership in the White House um, and also the House of Representatives have to do in order to unite some of these competing viewpoints within the party in order to uh, meet the needs of the American people? I'm really glad you asked that question because um, this is something that I, I, I don't quite understand. Uh, you see some pictures behind me. That's my late wife. We stayed married for 58 years. Oh. Uh, in that 58-year period, uh, we had a lot of differences. Uh, we had disagreements. Uh, flowing from her background and my background were totally different. And we had to reconcile those differences. And you've got a, a, a caucus like the Democratic Caucus, uh, where you've got, we got 55 African-Americans in our caucus. Uh, they've got one African-American in, in the Republican conference. Uh, and we've got people in our caucus from all walks of life, all kinds of experiences. We are not uh, as vanilla, nor uh, as we uniformed uh, as the Re Republican conference. And so there are going to be differences in our caucus, mm -hmm. and we have to recognize that. However, I maintain, and I've said this, I did an op-ed for the Washington Post several years ago uh, when we were trying to do that super committed stuff, trying to get to a budget. And I said in my op-ed piece, if the distance between me and the opponent on any political issue require uh, five steps, I don't mind taking three of them. You know, and, and, and to me, Compromise is what you do in order to further any agenda. And I don't know why we have to feel uh, that it's got to be my way or no way. Uh, I said to someone earlier today, uh, I never tell anybody that they're wrong. You never know. You can, you can beg to differ. I've got a different opinion than you have, but I cannot say that you're wrong. Only the passage of time uh, and the uh, and circumstances can make the determination as who's right and who's wrong. Mm -hmm. How many people told me that I was wrong? I mean, to the point of being angry with me for endorsing Joe Biden. Now, everywhere I look, people are saying, it turns out this is the only guy who could have won on the Democratic side. No other of those 20 some odd candidates would have been able to be successful looking on how it came out. Mm -hmm. Well, I took all that into consideration. I talked about whether or not, and I used the word, I really believe that Joe Biden would be Teflon. 
uh, to uh, these attacks uh, that uh, knocked off all those people uh, that uh, uh, opposed this president uh, four years ago. And so uh, you never know. Uh, you do what you think is in the best interest, uh, and you hope you come out right. But now I'm hearing people saying, you know, well, you're just wrong about that. Nobody is just wrong about anything. You never know about that uh, until history looks back on it. How many people criticize Harry Truman as being how wrong he was uh, for even integrating the armed services? Strom Thurmond left the party and formed the state's rights party and ran for president against Harry Truman because he integrated the armed services. Who will say today that that was wrong? But he, would, he was accused of being wrong at the time. Uh, how many people will say that 1954 uh, Brown v. Board of Education uh, holding was wrong? A lot of people said it was wrong. Billboards went up all over. Get us out of the United Nations. Impeach Earl Warren. You look back on it now, how can you call it wrong? So these are the kinds of things that just uh, really sometimes annoy me. I don't think anybody's got the right to tell anybody that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. Just beg to differ. Yeah. And I think that's so important after, you know, the last four years in which my generation, I think we kind of look at politics, we get a little bit detached because we see all of this kind of fighting between, you know, the president, the Congress, the Senate. And I just hope that under the Biden administration that he can really unite our party and kind of bring us back to a time when we, my generation can look to our leaders and see that you guys can work together. And I know that um, you've made it a goal of yours to do that, but, you know, just making sure that all of uh, public officials and elected officials really do go back to that day of compromise and um, listening to each other rather than attacking each other for their viewpoints. Well, thank you for that. I, I, I'm i going to work hard to do that because I, I, I really yes. feel uh, that we need to benefit of everybody's experience. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I was telling somebody the other day, uh, they asked me, said, uh, who won? Uh, in all of those arguments, you, the uh, disagreements you have with your wife. I said, she, she won most of the time, but every now and then uh, she would see it my way. Uh, but um, the fact of the matter is, uh, you have to really take these kinds of differences and square them with backgrounds and experiences. If you've got a caucus like ours, and we can't afford to lose all these house seats in the South. We, are, we will uh, lose uh, the authority to run the house. And so uh, if we elected every so-called uh, progressive uh, in the North uh, and the West and lose the moderates in the South and the Midwest, what do we have? And the same thing, vice versa. We can't, got to reconcile these differences and, and, and just know that they cannot always be in a one way. I, I would say if you were married for 58 years that you both won. It wasn't a winner or loser in your situation. But let me ask about another woman, um, the first female vice president of the United States will be inaugurated on January 20th, something that is exciting many, many women in America. Um, what do you think her role is going to be? How do you think uh, they are dividing up the responsibilities for president and vice president? 
I really don't know. Uh, Kamala called me on yesterday, and quite frankly, I need to call her back. I have not yet. Well, but she did, she did tell me uh, that there's no rush. Uh, just call to catch up, and when you get a chance, uh, let's let's catch up. So I'll probably get that chance on Friday to, and call her uh, and catch up. But um, look, she's a very skilled, uh, highly intelligent woman. Uh, Nobody watching her operate on that Judiciary Committee uh, and not know how skilled uh, she is. Her questions were great. She knew how to cut through the issues. She knew how to deliver a line. Uh, the closest uh, Joe Biden came to getting derailed in this uh, uh, campaign was because of her uh, questions of him in the debate. Uh, so she's a very skillful person. I have no idea exactly what interest uh, she would like to have but I've already told uh, the Biden team that I have a very significant interest regarding uh, judiciary. And that is uh, the impact of that 1986 and 88 and 94, those three crime bills all got lumped into the 1994 crime bill, though a lot of what people argued about was spread out over three crime bills. And I think that the priority of the next administration has got to be uh, to look at the unintended consequences uh, from those crime bills. Uh, there were good things in the 94 crime bill. The violence against women was in that crime bill. Yeah. Assault weapons ban was there. Pattern and practice investigations uh, of the uh, 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 police departments uh, in that crime bill. Drug courts uh, there, community policing. All that was in the 94 crime bill. But because the crime bill did not get rid of some stuff that was there in 1986, mandatory minimums, um, uh, we, it led to this, what we call mass incarcerations. And so we got a lot of people now that's got some records that are keeping them from voting and getting uh, decent uh, employment uh, and for doing what you can do up in Colorado and make a, li a legal living off of. And so I just think, uh, and I've already told them, uh, that's got to be somebody's priority. Uh, and maybe a former U.S. attorney, uh, I mean, former um, uh, attorney general would be a good person to do that. One of the other issues you're going to have to deal with is the divided government, possibly, um, not you particularly, but the sure. administration. Um, I mean, the elections and the runoff in Georgia could change that where the Democrats control the Senate as well as the House. Um, but in the event that there does turn out to be um, a control by McConnell and the Republicans, um, what do you think um, would be the biggest impediment to the administration from Republican control of the Senate? Uh, because I think some of those things may not be understood by the people. and might, if they understood the consequences, really motivate Georgia voters to make sure that Joe Biden has the ability to accomplish certain things that he may not be able to do if McConnell is still the speaker, is, is the leader. Uh, the majority leader. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's kind of hard to say because I, I do know that there is a different relationship that will exist between McConnell and um, Joe Biden than that which existed between 
uh, Barack Obama and McConnell. It will be different. How much different, I don't know. I just got the feel it'll be a significant difference uh, because you tend, uh, when you know people and you work with people, um, uh, you, you develop a different uh, kind of working relationship. And, you know, it was one thing before uh, Obama was in the Senate, what, uh, a little more than two or three weeks before uh, running for president. In fact, I think he was running for president before he got elected to the Senate. Uh, but uh, these kinds of things uh, conjure up a lot of uh, animus uh, from people who've been there for a long time. So I think their relationship will be different. Now, I haven't said that. I do believe that uh, Biden looked like he's winning by 13 to 14,000 votes uh, down in Georgia. So if Joe Biden uh, in the one-on-one race uh, can get uh, to 50%, these candidates in one-on-one can probably get there as well. Uh, and so I'm not giving up on winning no seats. Remember, in, in Warnock, for instance, in that race, there were 27 candidates. 27. Wow. So those votes were spread out quite a bit. And, they're, and, and they were spread out uh, on the other side as well. So nobody got to 50%. Mm -hmm. So I do believe uh, that the chances are, uh, there's a fighting chance uh, that we can win. Uh, and what we've got to do is uh, organize it right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not giving up on uh, having the Senate under Democrats control. Uh, I know the odds are steep. Uh, but it's been accomplished before. Like you said, we have to organize and you know keep on making phone calls, texting. Absolutely. For sure, so important. Um, I like to end by just kind of asking you to give my generation some hope under our next administration. You know, For the past four years, we've had a president who undermines our rule of law, constantly spreads dangerous information, which makes it scary for my generation and even Jill's generation. Um, what do you think my generation should be hopeful for under this new Biden-Harris administration? Well, let me tell you, when I saw uh, uh, my schedule had this podcast on, uh, I can't tell you what it did to me. Um, uh, I've got a 25-year-old grandson who's really my neighbor right across the street. He lives from me. Uh, and during the campaign, uh, he's very political, loves politics. Mm -hmm. uh, he came to me and told me, he's a, a granddad, uh, I think I'm going to get involved in this campaign. And I said, great, son. Uh, uh, I'm thinking he was going to be with his granddaddy. Uh, he said, I I'm going to be working for Pete Buttigieg. And so I said, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I said, so, but just remember one thing for me. I said, I never spanked you uh, when you were growing up, but I'm going to give you a good spanking uh, <laughs> on election day. Uh, and so, uh, but I talked to him uh, last night, night before, and I would say this to young people. Look, um, none of this stuff is going to happen overnight in a day. Uh, this generational stuff uh, is not all it, it's cranked up to be. Um, I don't know of anybody uh, in my caucus uh, that's more progressive than I am. I did a, a one of these Facebook things with Hank uh, Johnson, the congressman from Georgia, uh, mm -hmm. earlier today. And I was real uh, amazed, and most of his followers on this thing are young people. And he told me up front, and, and he closed by saying to them uh, that Jim Clyburn is 80 years old. Uh, 
but I have never, ever uh, seen anybody uh, push more progressive issues harder uh, than he does. And, and to me, uh, what we have to do is lay foundations upon which uh, young people's futures can be built. Uh, Jamie Harrison uh, caught the attention of his entire country in this campaign running for the Senate against Lindsey Graham. Jamie Harrison has been under my wing since he was in 11th grade. He came into my life when he was in the 11th grade. Wow. And I worked very closely with him. Uh, and uh, I tell people, says, where did he come from? I said, he was here all the time. He was learning. He was putting in the time that's necessary uh, to know how to do this. And he raised about $107 million in South Carolina. Uh, and I hope he'll be the next uh, DNC chair. Uh, he's 44 years old now. Uh, so I would say to young people, same thing I said to my children, get involved. And while you're involved, remember to do one thing for me, find something to do for which you're not paid. I really believe strongly that the things that pay off uh, for young people more than anything else is when people see them involved in something that is selfless. Uh, everybody expects for you to earn your pay, and you're supposed to earn, uh, uh, do a good day's work uh, for a good day's pay. But when people see that your interests go beyond that which benefits you and you alone, you'll be surprised at how much help you get to, to get the, your stuff accomplished. I, I hope Victor will take that advice very seriously. Sure. I think it's yeah. great advice. And I know someday that I'm gonna be very proud that I knew Victor when he was 17 and that he's now president elect. That's a long journey. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I've heard so much. You'll be surprised at how many people know exactly who you are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, they, they, they like Jill. <laughs> they love you. <laughs> so thank you so yeah, much for being so much. with us. This has been such an illuminating and charming conversation. I really adored it. And just, I'm so honored that you were willing to talk to us. Thank you very well, much. Well, thank you guys for having me. I hope you have me back sometimes. Of course. Thank you. We are definitely. For sure. yeah. okay. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.